What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James II, and I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives. We amplify Black stories and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill topics range from racism, police brutality, sexism, colorism to Greek life leadership and white elitism in the Ivy League. Black Voice on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in its college town, and unabashed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment, and we love the Black experience. Listen, Black Voice on the Hill is brought to you by WVBR News. To see what more new and upcoming episodes and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, be sure to follow us at WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit us at our website at WVBR.com slash Black Voices. Subscribe. Leave us a rating, a review. Listen, you're going to want to after the, we finish this episode, okay? We are on WVBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. And the podcast releases the following Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Listen, I have a very special guest in the studio today. I probably wanted her uh, since the show's start, which was September 2020. Uh, she's the first professor I've had on the show. Uh, the first professor from Cornell I've tried. But, you know, professors, especially Black professors, are very busy and they also are very, like, coveted all around the world. So uh, without further ado, I'm able to have her today. She is a professor of African-American literature in the Africana Studies Department. Um, the the, the Fame and a renowned Africana Studies Department at Cornell University, and she is Professor Richie Richardson. Say hello to the people, Professor Richardson. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's so good uh, to have you. Uh, she has such a just a regal personality. I want to start off, like I told you, with just the hot topic right now. So, uh, the other day, uh, in the whole, we have something a, a group chat for people of color. And the first thing I see is, you know, somebody send me the Zoom link because Matthew Knowles is on camera. And if you don't know who Matthew Knowles is, he's the father of Beyonce Knowles, the Beyonce, you know, and they really all wanted to be there. She is teaching a course. Um, Tell us, well, the name of the course is Beyonce Nation. So you can clarify that in a second. But of course, Beyonce, if you don't know her, I'm like, I don't know where you've been. But of course, she went from being a member of Destiny's Child to she's literally an icon. Uh, and we have an entire course devoted to studying her and her work and what she means to, I guess, Black feminism in particular. I just want to ask, how did you come to sort of develop this course? And then like, why Beyonce, I guess? Yeah. I have been researching Beyonce since around 2010, 2011, and reflecting specifically on her performance at Obama's historic inauguration in 2009, for starters. She was the subject that I was interested in covering for the conclusion of what became my uh, newest book, Emancipation's Daughters, Reimagining Black Femininity and the National Body. So I had been writing about Beyonce as a researcher and emerging as one of the critics in the field of Beyonce studies. 
So in the spring of 2017, I was all set uh, to present my teaching schedule for the upcoming academic year, or I had presented it, I submitted it. And then on second thought, it occurred to me, well, you know, why not teach Beyonce? So I changed it at the last minute and wrote a description and we put it on the books. And next thing I knew, I mean, it was like the enrollment kept going up. You know, I would go and sit down and people would be like, oh, heard about your enrollment, really interesting. <laughs> and theoretically that's supposed to, I guess, be kind of uh, confidential, but <laughs> there was nothing uh, confidential about that. It was just fascinating to hear the responses to it throughout the spring of 2017. And then over the summer, you know, once the books began coming in to hear comments um, from the bookstore, like, oh, wow, you know, books on Beyonce are filling the shelves. Interesting. And then to just see that leap of faith that a lot of students took to enroll. I mean, a lot of them didn't even have the description. They they hadn't found that. And so they just saw the title and automatically, you know, were on board. And so I, I just am so thankful for the enthusiastic response that it got from the very beginning. And the students themselves represented a broad cross-section of interests at Cornell. And we're talking almost every conceivable field. And it, they ran the gamut. You know, biology and society was there. Um, government was there. You know, industrial and labor relationship re relations was there. I mean, it was just it was such a, a diverse intellectual community that that course brought together. And I was extremely impressed by the quality of work that the students did, the papers that they wrote. I mean, it was the way I described it. Um, when when assessing everything was that they were like a think tank on Beyonce. They went in so many interesting directions for their research. And the semester, like every class would always begin with a panel um, presenting on and pitching questions at the rest of the class about the readings. And that was um, a strategy that helped to ensure that everyone spoke up at some point in the course and had a voice. It was modeled actually on the approaches that my um, cousin told me about, uh, taken by football coach L.C. Cole, based in Montgomery, Alabama. He typically worked with African-American uh, men, young, young boy, boys, really. You know, um, he worked at the high school level. I mean, he'd worked at the collegiate level, but, but was working by the at the um, high school level by the time that um, one of my first cousins was volunteering as a football coach with him. And so he would come back and tell me about those practices, which he said always ended by Coach Cole having five of the football players come up and answer a question at the end of practice. And those moments were to help prepare them for those encounters that they would inevitably have with the media. So he wanted to ensure that in front of the cameras, they were self-possessed and comfortable speaking up. And so that story stayed with me. And I kind of um, borrowed the strategy in designing the Beyonce course. And I think that it really paid off because even in their final presentations, which were open to the public, the groups typically consisted of eight to nine students. And 
it was astonishing to watch from presentation to presentation. They made sure that everyone in the group spoke, said something at some point. So I, and, and that actually was the event that eventually drew the attention of Dr. Knowles. So that's really their legacy, the fact that he ended up reaching out to me to introduce himself, to thank me for the course and to say, job well done. And that's how we began the plan to bring him to Cornell uh, for uh, what became a landmark visit, including him um, being interviewed by my friend and, and, and um, a, a, an amazing scholar, Dr. Marla Frederick, who was uh, based at Harvard University at that time. She's now um, at Emory and, and one of the foremost scholars in religious studies. But we had that um, just wonderful fellowship with Dr. Knowles in 2018. And so it's wonderful that we've been able to continue to build upon it. And so this is nearly five years later. That definitely, yeah, I get so many emails about that course. Uh, well, when are you going to offer it again? Like, I have got to take that course before I graduate and, and so forth. And it's not an average course. I mean, a lot goes into this course. A lot is invested in, in it. In my, I'm, I, I'm thankful for all the ways in which my department uh, have supported it. And like the first time um, my colleague, Naliwe Rooks, ensured that two teaching assistants were assigned. Both of them happened to be from Houston. And so that was definitely a plus. I, I don't know, an amazing coincidence too, but it just really did a lot to, I think, even um, ground the course in certain interesting ways and regional ways and advance those conversations. But um, this time around, it's coming off with a tech assistant named uh, Nia Whitmall, who's really wonderful, as well as two, te two teaching assistants, uh, um, Radwas Saad and Renata Fortis. And, and they're, they're really doing an incredible job. And so the title at this point is uh, Beyonce Nation, the remix. And so it was introduced uh, on January 25th with a launch that included multiple guests, including Dr. Cole, I mean, doc, Dr. Um, Dr. Knowles as a, as a surprise guest. And so that was just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still even digesting like what that meant and just how monumental it was that we were able to do that. The syllabus dropped an hour before uh, we began and it's been an amazing journey. So Dr. Knowles is back with us this week, once again, um, leading the unit uh, and discussion on his book about Destiny's Child. And it's like a, a master class. I mean, I cannot begin to describe the incredible learning opportunity that uh, he's offered. So um, it's, it's been nice to have his, um, his perspective, a firsthand perspective, and that of um, multiple guests who are um, in some cases familiar with the history of Destiny's Child, like one of my um, dear friends and sores, uh, Jocelyn Coleman, who uh, has a PR firm and works as um, works with the actor Morris Chestnut, and and that she um, was once an intern at Soul Train, which is wonderful. And you know, she has memories of Destiny's Child from way back then. And so, like in Tuesday's class, she she shared some of that. That's beautiful. You have mentioned so much. You, you talked about Montgomery, which we'll get to that in a second. Uh, you talked about just 
him being there. I want to. Does Beyonce know this class exists? Doctor Knowles mentioned that he told her about it when it, well, like during the session on the first day. Um, he mentioned her, and it was just really humbling and exciting that you know she is actually aware uh, of the course. Um, yeah, and I, I mentioned that it is in so many ways a love letter to her, and it reflects the enthusiasm and support that she she's generated. You know, we're looking at her from an academic perspective, and, and that's part of the beauty of a course like this because we're we're reading books, book studies in some cases, typically biographies that have been written about her. Like right now, we're in the uh, first unit that focuses on auto biography and um biography you know? and, and um students get a sense of the multiple ways that a story can be approached and told and 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 you see just variations in those approaches so it's it's i think that kind of unit that helps us to dig into how these histories have been um conveyed over time and the the, the range and approaches and we build those foundations. And it's not just Beyonce that we look at it in this course. It's also all of the major figures uh, connected to her, like, you know, her parents, um, Dr. Matthew Knowles and Miss Tina Knowles. <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of Miss Tina myself and just all of her uh, style ingenuity that she's been able to offer over the years. And then there's Solange. Like we just finished a book last week entitled Why Solange Matters. Dr. Knowles was actually thankful to see the book on Solange and, and indicated on Tuesday that, you know, he's read it and he, he or, or is reading it. And, and he's really enjoying, you know, the opportunity to 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 just get, you know, a sense of the perspective that is being um, offered. This is by uh, Stephanie Phillips, a wonderful journalist. So, you know, it it is that kind of dynamic and multifaceted course that's also grounded by the um our supporters in the library like uh, ben ortiz was there on the first day to talk about opportunities for working with the archive uh the hip-hop collection and cornell archives actually requested a copy of the syllabus um in 2017 and and, and they requested this one as well which i mean the 2017 syllabus was like a 14 page booklet, actually, and the syllabus booklet now is like 22 pages. And so it's a lot more than a syllabus. It's also designed to put everything in context because it's like, I don't know, it's just really interesting that there's just so much that has to go into a course like this. And there are so many moving parts. Um, the the um operate like the organizational manual for the teaching assistants alone was like seven pages single space like this the teaching and tech assistants so that we could be clear about the duties of everyone and everything is just very simple and straightforward but just to really clarify you know how we can maybe use best practices is is what was important to establish um foundationally and i think it's that kind of um i mean I, i as a scholar, I've often said, or I'm often left with the feeling that every course that I teach is the best one ever. And last semester left with me with that feeling after um, co-teaching a design justice workshop sponsored by the Mellon Foundation that took 
our entire class, mainly consisting of graduate students with one undergraduate student to New York City to dialogue with um, a range of Black memory workers and to meet um, just all these extraordinary figures and then visit historic institutions like the Brownsville Heritage House, the Weeksville Heritage House. We actually um, toured the African burial ground with uh, Nicole Halt Dentist, the architect of record. Uh, then there was Elizabeth Kennedy at Weeksville, who's the architect of record for that site. What it really helped expand my awareness of was just the extraordinary history of Black students at Cornell and architecture. The alumni are just off the chain. I mean, it is incredible. Sekou Cook actually met with our course uh, for a session to talk about his book on hip hop architecture. So, I mean, these incredible intellectual experiences that um, these courses are bringing together, I think, are, are just so inspiring because they, they, you know, always when knowledge can become more dynamic and go from the text into just like a three-dimensional level where you're meeting and dialoguing with actual practitioners, that there's something special about that. And so I feel that, you know, this has been just an amazing course to rebound back into where, you know, some of those energies are still there or like Dr. Knowles is definitely um, an illustration of a quintessential black memory worker at, at different levels, you know, because of all of the histories that he um, he's experienced over time. And then even the, the guests in some cases, like my friends, like, um, and, and family members, um, it's just been interesting that you have I, like one thing I want students to understand is what they have right now and the importance of looking around them. Like I think about, like as, as I was listening to Jocelyn Coleman speak in the Beyonce class the other day, it hit me, you know, we go so far back and say both of us um, are Delta She's from that famous Wall Street line at Spellman from Ada Kappa in the spring of 1990 that was just so um, phenomenal. And she was the stepmaster mentored by AJ Johnson. So it's just, wow, incredible. But the fact that we met because she was actually the editor of the Spellman Spotlight newspaper. So my former boss, like when I was an undergraduate student on that staff was also working at the editor's level, um, Tiari Jones, like these are the people who were giving me my assignments as a like, you know, sophomore at Spelman, including assignments like, well, you know, please go and interview Dr. Kenneth B. Clark before he leaves campus and while he's still a visitor, scholar in residence. So what I'm saying is that we are in the midst of greatness always. I met Raphael Warnick who's now a, a senator as an undergraduate at, you know, a, a retreat event one evening. And looking back, it's just staggering to think about how much so many of these people were already just emerging as, as, as great people. And I've seen a lot of peer mentoring in the Cornell community among the undergraduates that really pleases me. Like, um, I'll come to this in a minute, maybe, but 
say at, I think it was the 2018 graduation, because I taught the Willard Strait course two years running. It was just interesting and so deeply inspiring to see people who had already graduated. First of all, to hear, like we have introductions in my courses usually on the first day of class, if that's feasible. And I heard stories from some of the students who'd enrolled in the Willard Strait course that, well, my mentor told me about this course. And when she was talking about her mentor, in that case, she was talking about another student, like a more advanced student, who'd actually told her about the course from the first time it around that it was offered. And so there were moments like that. So you see how much students influence one another and serve as role models for one another right in the undergraduate community at Cornell. And then at graduation, my goodness, it's like the people who were by then alumni had literally come back to witness the ceremony of their friends, people with whom they were invested. And that inspired me. I even posted about it in social media. I was like, wow, you know, my classes have had these student leaders in them. They're doing just great work and they look out for their mentees. They're, they show, they're showing you how it's done. Yeah, there's so much there. I literally could listen to Professor Richardson all day because um, when you hear her talk about her, her, her life experiences, um, and I'm talking to the audience right now, but when I listen to her talk about not only Montgomery, um, which is couched in so much Black history and rich African-American history, we're talking about city where Montgomery boy, bus boycotts happened. We're talking about, you know, where much of the civil rights, you know, big five organizations did a lot of work. We're talking about you know, and then she mentioned Spellman. She goes to HBCU, which is a, not just a HBCU, but a Black women's HBCU, uh, which is, you know, heralded just across the world um, as just a great place for Black women to go. Um, and then, so there's no, there's no, it's not by happenstance, I guess, that she ends up in the Africana, you know, center and uh, Africana studies and devoting her life to Black studies, Black women's studies in particular. Um, you talk about Black you know, mentorship and those types of things. Um, I can attest to that as well, that like those peer relationships can be critical in shaping um, not just the course that you take at Cornell, but also like you talked about Willard Strait Hall. I mean, there's so many people that, you know, the seniors in that in that movement, you know, um, causing, you know, some, some agitation, rightfully so, and it mobilizing those younger classes. Um, we had a, a guest on, on this platform who was, you know, he was, um, I think he was a freshman, uh, 18 years old when the Willard Strait Hall um, demonstration and occupation took place. Um, he remembers the, 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 the Worry House, um, having a cross burning in front of it. And he remembers, you know, the the scent, the hubs. Now the hubs on campus are sort of created by, you know, phone, like, oh, where, you, where are you? I'll group me, message you. But back then you knew where, you know, the sort of black hub was, or you knew that something was happening or somebody was, you know, upset about something because there would be a group of students, you know, collected across campus. And um, there's so much rich history there. I want to I want to ask you, though, like specifically about Black studies, Black women's studies, like why? Because Africanist, the Africana Center, which is located on North, um, that's not the original place where it was housed. But, you know, many people don't understand why it's so critical 
to number one, have black studies, um, African-American studies in particular. And maybe you can talk about that distinction as well, because there is a distinction and yet African-American studies is a subset of black studies, but maybe um, why we need it. And then also just talk a little bit about the history because I mean, it was birthed out of um, really a struggle and, and really many, I'm sure many college campuses, especially elite college campuses, um, can testify to the fact that it is a struggle to have programs that are directly related to studying, you know, Black suffragists, Black women, Black performers. I mean, a Beyonce course 50 years ago would have been reprehensible because we don't study Black performers. They perform and they're, they're not an academic, they're not considered worthy of being an academic subject. Um, so maybe you could just talk about why is why it's so critical. Yeah. Yes. I definitely believe that Africana studies is important, indispensable even. Uh, if we look at it from the perspective of Black intellectual history and in relation to pioneering figures such as W.E.B. Du Bois, we can understand and recognize how crucial his contributions were to advancing and building a range of disciplines, literally multiple disciplines, as some of the critics uh, who work on Du Bois have indicated. Africana studies is inherently an interdisciplinary and comparative discipline. And so those methodologies at its heart are part of what make it distinct. And typically in the foregrounds, uh, geographies from Africa to its diasporas, including in the US and the Caribbean, in the case of our department. But different departments in some cases take very different um, approaches, but what's significant, what's important about our department is that it's very much at the vanguard yeah. in establishing and blazing the trail for Africana studies as a field nationally and globally. The field was literally founded at Cornell. And so there's something to say about that. I think that there's something to be very proud of, you know, that our campus was very much at the forefront in advancing and um, establishing and advancing this uh, line of um, inquiry that's now become so vital in academic studies. And so that, that, that history is important. And then the activist history that was part of the institutionalization of um, Africana studies bears noting, because definitely it at one level was a reflection of black student movement that was really um, just infectious throughout the nation by the late 1960s. And, and it was a field that reflected what was perceived as an acute need to have um, black people, people of color in general um, and ethnic studies more visible in curricula that it typically excluded them, rendered them as being invisible and irrelevant 
um, given the focus on um, European context and, and so much of Western-oriented scholarship. So the challenge that the Black student movement posed in academia helped open the door. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's important for faculty who entered these institutions as a result of, of you know, that activist movement to be attuned to the, the student populations that helped to bring them into these institutions in some cases. I feel like the opportunities are never anything to take for granted. So, you know, throughout my career, you know, whether it was my first decade in the University of California or time that I've spent here, the fundamental Black student organizations like Black Students United and um, the Black Graduate Student um, Professional and Student Graduate and Professional Student Organization or uh, BSU and the BGPSA have just been important, you know, to, to connect with and, and, and to um, support. So that's part of it, I think. And then this past decade brings, I think, more urgency as far as thinking about what the Black student movement means at this point. Like, you know, we can think about the Trayvon, like Trayvon Martin, we're literally, what, days away. It's hard, really. You know, but from the anniversary of the tragedy related to Trayvon Martin, I was listening to, I began listening to the, um, the new book released by Sabrina Fulton, uh, reflecting on 10 years later and what that means. And then, you know, going on to, um, Ferguson and key moments. Mizzou was really a turning point as well with the football players there who took a stand and I think in certain ways ignited just new waves of the, like helped to nationalize that new wave of the Black student movement that had already been unfolding and building. And then I feel that Kaepernick in effect nationalized it in the NFL, you know, with the take a knee movement. So there's just something about the past decade that has helped to revitalize the movement in light of, you know, the anti-Black um, police violence incidents that, that um, have happened. And of course, 2020 was another turning point. And so this past weekend, like at the Super Bowl, for instance, with the rapper Eminem choosing to take a knee, I think that was just so significant. I had just been in a conversation on cultural appropriation like days earlier and mentioned that if people insist on appropriating the culture, it's not, it can't be like everything but the burden. They have to think about what the burden associated with blackness means as well. And what it means to be a good ally, what allyship means. Wow. I was thinking about that today, actually. Do you think there is such a thing as allyship, Professor Richardson? And if so, what does that look like? Well, I think it, it can take many forms. I mean, I think it's crucial to move beyond the superficial forms of uh, performance allyship, where 
you know, it, it happens at surface level. People think that they've done their job if they put the Black Lives Matter sign in the window. But yeah, that's a that's a nice gesture towards solidarity. But it really, I think, can be felt when people seriously rethink and re-question, re- reconsider aspects of the culture itself, the policies that they support. You know, don't go missing uh, um, in the important conversations. So I think, you know, the choices that people make and, 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 and I think it's important to consider whether they're helping to move things forward or are supporting the, the status quo. And if it's the latter, then the allyship basically is utterly meaningless as far as I'm concerned. That's it. And that's all there is to it. Listen, I just want to say to you all, in case you don't know who you're listening to, I mean, Professor Richardson, I'm going to just read a little bit of your resume and how accomplished you are. I mean, she's had pieces to appear in the New York Times, Huffington Post. She's been on news media outlets such as the Today, the Today Show, CNN, PBS NewsHour, I believe, the BBC, the Washington Post, uh, the She's had pieces in old magazine that is always an Oprah uh, essence. I mean, you could literally start your own <laughs> black studies school. You know, you're just so accomplished. And so the fact that Cornell has her um, and and also Cornell being like she said, the to think that I go to a university that really started and trailblazed the path into black studies, African-American studies, Africana studies is absolutely amazing and just um, that is a a moment where I probably need to sit back as a senior and think like wow let me value this treasure this history a little bit more I want to ask you before we get to you and talking about you a little bit uh, before you know because by then it'll be time to wrap up but I do want to ask you as an academic you talk about you know just the burden of being black aside from the appropriative aspects, uh, you know, like part of that burden is also having every part of who you are, I think, politicized. A part of it is also having every part of who you are considered a threat, right? Because of anti-Black racism, racism in this country. One of the ways that that manifests today, though, I'm thinking about critical race theory and you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who I would love to talk to and have on this platform. She got her master's at, I think her master's at Cornell, Cornell grad. She went on to Columbia University, really literally founded critical race studies and theories and intersectionality as a term. Please read up on her, y'all. And uh, I'm thinking about the banning of books that relate to race, racism, and a lot of, you know, formerly confederate states let's just be honest uh in states like texas for example there was a group of white parents that wanted to ban like 84 books one of them the books was literally just a biography about michelle obama and a lot of that was because it painted donald trump in a bad light and you know but many parents don't even believe forget like critical race theory many parents don't even believe race or racism not even just that, but like black people shouldn't even be be taught about in in schools. What are your thoughts about this as an academic? What I mean, how do you 
I mean, this, because you talked about the movement and how all of these catalyzing events, Mizu, you talked about Trayvon Martin's killing, like all of these caused the movement to shake it, shape in new ways. This is shaping the movement in a different way. It's not, it's the right to education and be fully, for a child to be fully educated about this country's history and the people that contributed to it. What are your thoughts about that as a black woman and then as a black professor about this happening? Wow. Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, first, I I just want to mention that um, of the publications that you overviewed where I've I've been featured, um, one that that I want to just not to very quickly is Essence. Mm -hmm. Because that happened, actually. That was a byproduct of um, my undergraduate time at Spelman. So toward the end of my senior year, uh, a young woman named Natasha Tarpley uh, put out a call for papers for an anthology entitled Testimony, Young African Americans Talk About um, Self-Discovery and Black Identity. And so I ended up being selected as one of the authors to write a chapter for that landmark volume. You look at the table of contests now, it includes so many amazing people. Um, Jelani Cobb, Tana Hesey Coates, and just on and on. So it was a landmark project to be a part of. And then Essence did an interview with her in October of 1993. I was just beginning graduate school at Duke. And so I know this is years before um, most of the undergraduate population at Cornell were, were born. But to appear in essence was just really a capstone moment that I think um, really affirmed my path just as I was going into graduate school and also voice as a writer. And to see the professionalism that they brought to that, I mean, just, you know, having every detail just um, just overviewed was just, it, it was interesting and exciting and I learned from that. And so that was an early illustration of me telling my story. My model back then actually was Destiny's Child, strangely enough. And I mentioned that in, in um, the article. So it was just interesting to get to the UC Davis a few years later and to hear from my students um, multiple times that there was a scholar on campus who, who actually taught that piece that I wrote. And so sometimes students even came to my courses because they wanted to get a look at this person that they had read in their classes. And so it was just interesting, you know, to see that. But in terms of this political climate that we're in at this point, I mean, I'm very disappointed by a lot of the um, the conversation. And I think it falls short of what is possible you know, if more people were in, genuinely invested in advancing the common good. And it, it's definitely been deeply disturbing to see um, this new obsession with uh, censoring um, major authors, including, ridiculously enough, Nobel laureate Toni Morrison, who's indispensable for the toolbox of any and everyone serious and genuine about bettering the society and advancing conversations on race, including equality. So 
I, I just can't believe it. And then to think about Art Stubigelman's um, mouse, that's, that's, that's horrible. Um, and a slap in the face on so many different levels, especially, yeah, think about Mouse 2, what it meant to, like, there's a part of Mouse 2 that, this, I don't know, it's like, all of it is heartbreaking, but when I think about the the author's description of his mother who had written memoirs that then ended up being lost to history because they were discarded, that deeply unsettles me because her voice could have added so much perspective, very different kind of perspective. And so that there are people out there now trying to shut down opportunities to study this this two volume set that at least conserves cultural memory um, of the Holocaust and, and, and so much, isn't, it's just unacceptable and it's unconscionable. So I, I, um, I feel that, you know, when we have people who are, are spreading a lot of misinformation about critical race theory, that's really regrettable. So it's just a very ahistorical and distorted representation, first of all, of what critical race is. A lot of people who are talking about it don't even know what it is, don't have a clue about what it is. Um, I mean, because it is absurd for anyone to even suggest that it's being taught at the secondary level. You know, I first encountered perspective and critical race theory as an undergraduate at Spelman and through authors such as Derek Bell, whose face is at the bottom of the well. But what they're suggesting that critical race does and is intended to do is not at all the truth about it. And so to, to be so invested in spreading lies is one thing, or trying to shut down the study of Black history and conversations about slavery. See, my thing is that I believe in righteousness and the path of righteousness. I'm a Christian woman myself. And unrighteousness will, will, will not take us forward. And when you have things that have happened in the past, there has to be some acknowledgement of that. And there has to be atonement and then genuine effort to try to improve things and to, you know, ameliorate um, the wrongdoings and to, to create, a, to, to heal what's broken. Because in some cases, this is just such sedimented. Like I, I remarked a few months ago to my mom that it's like it's, it's fossilized the, the pain, the evil, literally, that is there. And when you have people who, instead of attempting to remedy that painful past, are on a mission to Poor, just to escalate and to deepen the divisions. I don't know what to say. I don't um, know what to do with that kind of mindset because it's it's not helping uh, our democracy, and in fact, it threatens to destroy it. I tell you, throughout this interview, I, sometimes when we get to certain topics, I didn't know whether, to, like, you want to cry, you want to yell, you want to scream, because it it really is infuriating to see uh, 
history sort of take this course, talk about the paths of righteousness. I love it. Uh, and I feel like that's, if you look at the civil rights movement, my pastor talks about this often is that one of the founding like principles almost of civil, when you look at civil rights, also known as the first black freedom movement, um, aside from, you know, beyond emancipation itself, uh, it's the modern, you know, black freedom movement, um, is that righteousness was at the core of it. It was, you know, this idea right. that, you know, I was created by God and you can't do this to me. You can't treat me in this inhumane way. And, um, and, and with that being said, I want to talk about your sort of roots and how you got to court because you talked about Cornell and post Cornell now, you know, you know, but now I want to talk about those roots. Tell me what it's like growing up because my last guest was Liz Davis Frost, graduate and professional student trustee. She's from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so I want to talk about another Alabamian. I don't know what you, how you say it, um, something <laughs> of that nature, but tell me about those roots and those beginnings. You already mentioned your mom, so you can talk about that. Yes. So uh, I was born in what is often referred to as the birthplace of the civil rights movement, Montgomery, Alabama, in May of 1971. And so I, I think in some ways, I think of it as the post-civil rights era or a certain moment at the beginning of the 1970s. And as I mentioned, um, the the um, faith is, is so important to me. And, I, and, and um, my family, I feel, has played an important role in, in my development, a, a family that's been very loving and supportive throughout my life that, that at its core consisted of my mom and grandparents, as well as my aunt and uncle and then other extended family. But it definitely provided a context in which I was able to thrive and to develop um, good, solid values and work habits. Um, Growing up, for instance, it was interesting that my family was so intensely creative, like they were doing their own thing always in their jobs. Like my grandfather was a contractor in construction. Um, my grandmother did private duty nursing and my mom worked for the federal government for many years. Um, and so that, that was, you know, their public facing work. But then at home, they were always doing such interesting things like my grandfather was constantly working on projects. I say I have a geometric eye. And that's in part because of him. He, he was always concerned about, what do you think, Mama? You know, his nickname for me was Sweet Mama. And so he would always ask me, like, what I thought of his projects. And he he worked on East Del Mall, like literally the showplace of the Southeast. Uh, and so it opened when I was in first grade. And so we went to the opening and saw that was really nice. And my grandmother like was always doing things that my aunt, you know, constantly um sewing and doing different projects. Then she had macrame projects she was working on and beading and weaving and everything. So I was just surrounded by all of this interesting activity. And I will, I will say that I always had a project going. Always in my life, I've had some kind of project going from the time I was nine. It's like, hold on for dear life in a family like that. You know, you want to do something too. Um, that's interesting. And so sometimes it's, it's true that I think student children are a reflection of like the adults around them. And so the ones around me were just very 
um, they used that they, they, you know, did the regular things that families do, like, you know, watch television and eat, you know, all of that. But the how they approached their downtime was always just fascinating to me and a challenge to me to, you know, find my own way, so to speak. And so I feel that I've always fundamentally, foundationally been a um, been a very philosophical person, um, very spiritual, um, and and that's foremost, really. But then also uh, very passionate uh, about art, very passionate about writing. I've never changed. I don't. I've never changed myself. I feel like I'm the same person I've always been. And the projects that I've done over the years, there have been many that have failed. You know, what's visible out there in the public now is like what's succeeded. But I mean, there's just been so much always that I've been at constant work, like nurturing and pouring time into over the years. And so my art studio is is part of what tells the story like of my journey as an artist and all of those old projects that I did. So it, it and as, as a writer, it's been similar, like, you know, always writing poetry and just in my journals and just different things like that. I mean, I consider my personal writing actually to be my, to be my priority and very different from the academic writing I do. So the personal writing is the one that I'm I'm just always the most careful steward of because I feel that that's a part of what helps me to keep things in balance. And especially I think it's important for, for mental health and because you just need that um, like long view on things that can help put things in perspective. But I feel that I, I, um, I've been blessed to be able to do work that reflects those underlying passions that I've managed to kind of like in elementary school, there was a way it came out. Um, like I ran for a mock, like in seventh grade, I, I was elected president of the United States in a mock election and just had the time of my life, um, like with the campaigning um, and this choir of girls that were in my class that I think offered so much support. Um, then by high school, I was, I attended well, I attended St. John the Baptist Catholic School growing up. Um, and then for high school, I attended the historic St. Jude Educational Institute, best historically known as the final camping place for Selma to Mar Montgomery Marchers in 1965. And, and so we were just, I think, so blessed at St. Jude. It was a place full of legacy, a lot of tradition, a lot of history. Like you could literally walk down the hallways and see um, framed photo collages featuring every, almost every graduating class from through the years. People could go and look up their parents on the wall, right? You know, as they were walking to class and that sort of stuff. So it was like that. And there was a lot of tradition. And so by senior year, well, junior year, I was the student council vice president there. And then senior year, the newspaper editor, and then also student council president. And we had Black history assemblies that we would have to plan throughout Black History Month. And so I was in charge of producing those assemblies by the time I was a junior. And then we had court, like all these traditions, like the coronation ball was an annual event. And there were a lot of civic events that um, I grew up in 
um, participating in as a team, like cotillions and balls. Like, so I came out on the coronation ball on the court as the, as um, on the court with, with um, the math team, like second attendance to Miss Math. Um, Cause I, like, I, I, I won the award for most outstanding geometry student at the end of my sophomore year. So, I mean, but there, there were just so many great moments and then capped off by my debutante cotillion at age 17 and just so many wonderful events along the way. So I feel that the, the social grounding that I got in um, Alabama was valuable. The intellectual grounding was very valuable and indispensable. Um, and it was definitely the primary site of my intellectual formation. And then the, the spiritual grounding, you know, the values, all of that, I think has is, is given me really um, wonderful foundations. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. And uh, I think it's also a beautiful thing about um, being black and growing up in the South as well, um, in particular. There's something, I mean, every single person, I, you know, they often talk about that intellectual formation, but also the spiritual and how that, that almost like that was the the rocker foundation and it, it's it's interwoven almost um you could say that because it's the bible build or whatever but it's it is um an injury and then it's also the site of so much resistance struggle talk about montgomery being the birthplace of the civil rights movement i mean it is a it's an interesting you know uh three-stranded cord i guess you could say but is it is quite beautiful uh to see that now now, though, you talk about the spiritual aspect. Now, the way that I met Professor Richardson first, I don't think it was on campus necessarily. I don't think. Uh, I think the way that I met her was I saw this lady get up and, you know, I didn't know who she was at the time, but she got up every, you know, like I think during the month of March or maybe it was Black History and March uh, and the month of March. And I haven't, you know, been in person to see this happen in a while because of COVID. But uh, because and, and the 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 church has been closed down it was at one point uh but now but every every year sort of at calvary baptist you know she gives the highlights and i'm asking her today since this is black history month and this is the last episode in the short 28 day black history month i think we should we should we should well it's okay we celebrate all year long but nevertheless i'm asking her to highlight specifically a black woman who's Who's the Black woman you have for us today to end out the show? Well, I want to pay tribute to the extraordinary Whitney Houston. This week, so many people have reflected on what it means that she's now been gone for 10 years. And losing her was so difficult. I remember at that time, um, that she was being celebrated in her home going. I was away from Cornell at the Black Solidarity Conference hosted at Yale. And, and so from the hotel, the ceremony was playing on all of the screens that were visible where, you know, like literally a, a crowd was able to, to see. And it was just a, a very sad, um, sad thing to witness when she passed away. Um, I, I've long found inspiration in Whitney Houston. Um, 
we can think about what it means that she was born in the very month of the March on Washington. So when Dr. King went out and addressed that crowd and then talked about the children, you know, of today, as well as the children of tomorrow, well, she was just some days old then. And to think about a path that took her from that moment on to so many other incredible ones, it's just really something, you know, all these groundbreaking achievements that she made where would they have been able in 1963 to imagine a voice like the one crying in a cradle in, in New, Newark, New Jersey, that would someday make the, the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, a top 10 hit. So I, I, I think there was something incredible about Whitney Houston and, and very exceptional, you know, that she started out as a, a teen uh, model, you know, as a face on Seventeen magazine in a way that made history in its own right. And sometimes things like that end up receding in, in people's minds when the even um, bigger achievements start unfolding. But I never forget that in all those early ways in which she connected with uh, young Black girls um, like my friends and me at St. Jude and in so many other places around the nation. Um, songs like The Greatest Love of All. You know, what did that mean? Um, that is so important. One of the greatest things that you can ever learn to do is to love yourself. That was a message so vital and so important. And people all around, including Black girls, need to understand their worth. And so Whitney Houston helped to teach my generation that important lesson. And we loved all of her uh, videos and and they were like they brought us joy, like genuine joy, kind of like you know Beyonce helps to bring so many people joy now, along with Solange um, and and other artists. But Whitney Houston and people like Janet Jackson as well serve that purpose for my generation. And so I remain deeply indebted to her for so many different reasons and the breakthroughs she made. You know, by like a lot of times back then, back in the day the breakthroughs in entertainment, whether you're talking about modeling, acting, or singing, were held up as like the highest bars you could reach. And what did it mean that, you know, she cleared the board, she did it all. She reached, I mean, and yet and still, what was presented as success for young Black women like her came up empty. And I think it's so important for us to ask these questions you know, to look at the, the breakthroughs and the achievements, but then to understand how much more people need in some cases. Like, you know, we can think about what it meant in more recent times to have a heartbreaking loss of uh, Miss USA, Chesley Chris, like that alignment where we would have multiple Black women winning these pageant titles in 2019 was unprecedented. I mean, we kind of seen it in, in, in 1983, um, I was 12 at the time when Vanessa Williams was crowned as the first Black Miss America. And then you had the first run up as Miss America, too, in, in Black. That was significant. So, you know, there's been that forward progress. But 
it, it, we have. I think it, it's a lesson that we need more than the even the Black First that we so often celebrate. We need to make sure that we're pouring into the people who are making the sacrifices to um, open the doors and blaze the trails. There, all of us are human, and and need support and and love, and understanding. We need so much more than the black firsts. It's so true. We talked about that on this show as well. Just even the burden. We talked about the burden of earlier, the burden of being yes. the black first. Yes. It's a heavy weight. Um, and I think that with being black first and the trailblazing also comes that conversation, like you just said about mental health or just you know support systems how are we supporting black women how are we doing you know so much more than giving them crowns and tiaras and performative things you know things they should have had a long time ago now we need there's more there's a lot more um wow any closing thoughts professor richard well i i just want to uh send Many blessings to everyone for a wonderful semester, whatever you're doing um, in, in, in your life and in, in your studies. Remember the responsibility that comes with being undergraduate students at Cornell, Ithaca College, wherever you happen to be. Um, and to think about the unique, the, the unique place you're in like right now. And um, again, you know, to remember that to whom much is given, much is expected. So just, you know, it's about, I think, keeping one's priorities in place to do one's best work. But then part of doing that work is what another um, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Lara Morse talks about, and that is engaging in self-care. That's so vital. So I love it. And, and drawing on the family support systems, I think that's another that's actually powerful as well. I think, you know, the college years can be a time when um, people are so surrounded by their peers. A lot of times they're not talking as necessarily much as necessarily, you know, to their other um, support system. And, and so just know that you're you're part of a legacy that you represent. A legacy is 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 bigger than yourself, and so there's accountability on that level too. Like that's one reason that I have attendance policies always in my classes, because I feel that an education is not to be taken for granted. And I think a lot of times, even undergraduate students are not as fully aware of the sacrifices that are being made to send them to college and to keep them there. You know. Your family may be sacrificing things that they would really like, you know, maybe that, you know, new dress or those kinds of things. But it's more of a priority to 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 pour into and invest in in your future. And so, you know, do what you're supposed to do and do your best always is what I I really think is important. Beautiful advice. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Professor Richardson. This has been absolutely amazing. I have not. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me and for inviting me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to dialogue. Thank you so much. I feel like I've been poured into today. I just feel so I feel refreshed uh, and just so appreciative. How can the people how can we stay in touch with you, Professor Richardson? Well, I can be reached via email at Cornell always. Um, I'm in social media on Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, not so much. I'm not a good Twitter person. Like that's not my medium, but 40 words, <laughs> forget it. Snapchat, I, I can't okay, do that either, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, right, and it disappears, you know, I, y'all gonna have okay. to help me with that. Cause it's like, <laughs> and TikTok, I'm not on there. Even though I get, TikTok actually ends up pouring into me in some ways. I see all the videos yeah. and things like that. I, 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 people are just so creative these days. It's just wonderful. Um, yeah, but those are, are are definitely good ways to to reach out and keep in touch. Good stuff. Listen, y'all, we've had Professor Richay Richardson. Thank you so much. And enroll in classes. Don't forget that. My goodness. Oh yeah, enroll her. Okay, so tell us what what you're teaching this semester, and maybe give us some things to look forward to. Let's do that. Okay. Well, you know, this semester I'm teaching the Beyonce course, and then the Africana Graduate Seminar. So. Um, that's what's on the table right now. In the fall, God willing, I will offer the seminar again entitled Bell Hooks Books. We lost uh, very recently the phenomenal Black feminist and intellectual Bell Hooks, author of so many, what, what nearly, uh, nearly 40 books. Um, and so it's incalculable to think of what it means that um, we've lost bell hooks, you know, and, and so I really wanted to offer this course again as a tribute to her and, and, and to, as an opportunity to, to, to look at her um, full body of uh, work as much as we can. And then um, there's also a course that I'm teaching in the coming academic year on the Harlem Renaissance and New Harlem authors. There's the African-American survey this coming up again. I'm really just thankful to be able to offer always a range of courses that genuinely excite me. And um, I appreciate the hard work that students typically bring to my courses as well and and what they give and do. So good. So good. Uh, And uh, listen, artists, recording artists, when they're on a show, they they have new music that they want to, you know, expose. Uh, professors, <laughs> they have new courses and new books. By the way, tell us the title again, you, Emancipated Daughter, um, but the new book. Yeah. Oh, Emancipation's Daughters, Reimagining Black Femininity and the National okay. Body. Beautiful. Make sure that you guys get that. You can literally find her on the internet. Just type in Rich A. Richardson. Okay. And it's open source, actually. The book is that kind that is... Um, it received a couple of publication awards on the path to publication. So it is available on Kindle for free download. So no excuses. <laughs> no excuses. Oh, thank you once again, Professor Richardson. Listen, y'all, to see what more new and upcoming episodes of Black Voices on the Hill and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, be sure to follow us at Black Voices on the Hill on Instagram. Follow WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit us at WVBR.com slash Black Voices. Listen, y'all. 
We've got some merchandise coming to y'all very soon, and we'll be making an announcement about that. But make sure that you stay tuned, stay locked in. You don't want to move that dial. We're coming up on Women's History, and we're going to have some great guests for that as well. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Overcast. Um, you can also follow us on YouTube and follow us now, not just on Instagram, but on Twitter as well. And tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 every Friday. We are on the air live. Well, not live, but recorded at 2 p.m. And the fo- episode releases the following Tuesdays at 11 a.m. on all podcast platforms and YouTube. We'll see you next week. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Sykes and Grace Fairchild. Peace out, family.